Well, good morning, everyone. I'm really excited to be able to be here with you all and bring the word that the Lord has given to me for this week. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. Today, we're going to be talking about the heart. So I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 2 through 26. Again, for anybody who wants to follow along with me, that's going to be Matthew chapter 27, verses 2 through 26. And I'm going to take a moment to pray. Lord, we welcome you into this place. We thank you for your word, which allows us to learn more about who you are and your will for us and your heart. Please open our ears to hear your word today, our minds to know your word, and our hearts to understand it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price set, him, set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They answered him, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, 
but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So in this first portion of the scripture, we see Judas Iscariot, who is the one that's known for betraying Jesus. And he returns to the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel in order to return the money that they had given to him so that he would betray Jesus. You see, right before this point in our scripture, Judas agreed to betray Jesus and hand him over to be tried by the religious leaders for the price of 30 silver pieces. Quickly after the transaction occurs, Judas returns to the disciples and they have the Last Supper. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying. And this is where Judas realizes that he has that opportunity to betray Jesus. You see, he had to do this in a place that wasn't going to be with a lot of crowds that supported Jesus. Because a lot of top point, uh, at a lot of points, the Pharisees had attempted to arrest him. But the people who had surrounded him made them afraid so that they would not. Judas had received his pay, and Jesus has been arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin which was a group of high-level priests. They were at the temple, and they were going to judge him for his supposed crimes. At this point, the group of priests decide that he must be condemned to death. And this judgment couldn't be carried out by themselves because they were under Roman rule at this time, and a law that was put in place at around 28 AD kept them from being able to do the death penalty. So the Sanhedrin council decides he's going to be put to death and brings him to the palace of Pontius Pilate, who is the ruler over that area, so that he could choose the death penalty and enact it under the Roman law. And that brings us to where we're at in our story. We can see four different types of heart here. And the first heart that I want to look at is the one that Judas Iscariot had. His was the sorrow-filled heart. Judas, having heard the intentions of the religious leaders to kill Christ, and seeing that Christ was choosing to go along with the trials, becomes consumed with guilt at his actions. Judas may not have actually realized the extent of what his actions would bring when he turned in Jesus to them. You see, it's possible that he assumed that Christ would release himself from the bondage or possibly that he would talk his way out of it since he was actually an innocent man. Then Jesus would be released and put in a place of honor. The Jews would be shamed and he would get to keep the money and there would be no harm done. Judas had seen up to this point the many miracles that Jesus could do. He saw him defy the laws of the entire known world. I mean, he walked on water, he had healed the sick, he had healed the demon-possessed. He knew that if Jesus wanted to, he could easily release himself from the chains that bound him. But when, G when Judas realizes that his plan wasn't occurring, that Jesus was not freeing himself and was even not protecting himself against the accusations, and that he was sentenced to death, he becomes distraught with shame and with guilt. Job 20, 12 through 14 says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he, tried, and he hides it under his tongue, 
though he cannot bear to let it go and lets it linger in his mouth. Yet his food will turn sour in his stomach and will become the venom of serpents within him. And that is exactly what occurs to Judas in this moment. Though the sin of greed and betrayal seemed very sweet at first, in the face of the consequences, it quickly turned to venom within his soul. Judas recognizes that he has made a grave mistake. He has, centered his, he has sentenced his teacher, his rabbi, his friend, a man that he knew was innocent, to death for the price of 30 silver pieces. So Judas, filled with the shame and guilt of his actions, goes back to the religious leaders in an attempt to make things right. The Greek word used for Judas's feeling of remorse is the word metalomahi, and it means to change one's mind completely or to reverse one's actions. When Judas felt this remorse, he felt the need to completely turn away from the course that he had been set on and to make things right. Judas begins this process with an announcement of recognition of his sin. This is the first step in the process towards receiving grace. A person must recognize that they have done wrong and accept the need for forgiveness. Judas approaches the religious leaders and tells them, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. When Judas had accepted the money, he agreed to sell out Jesus to the Pharisees. And by doing this, he was also serving as a witness against Jesus. When he returned to the temple and admitted that he had lied and had been a false witness against Christ, he accepted the law that came along with admitting to being a false witness. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 18 through 21, the severe punishment for false testimonies is laid out. It says, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Judas realizes that by admitting to being a false witness, he accepts the very punishment that has been put onto Jesus to be crucified on the cross. Judas, though seeing Judas, though he sees the weight of his sin, he understands it and recognizes that he is wrong, and he would much rather take the punishment of death than to allow an innocent to suffer for his own actions. Judas also tries to make restitution for his crime. He brought the full amount of silver back to the temple and back to the Pharisees in order to show that he recognized he was wrong. He was willing to not only bear the punishment, but to pay back what had been given to him. When the Pharisees would not accept his claim as a false witness and would not receive the money, Judas threw the money down into the temple and left. Unfortunately, even in the face of this repentance and this restitution, Judas did not go back to God with his sorrowful heart. 
and instead he chose to hang himself in grief. By doing this, he chose to take the judgment and punishment into his own hands, rather than accepting the consequences of his sin and moving forward in the grace of God. When Judas had betrayed Jesus, the Pharisees were in a good place to go against Jesus. If one of those closest to him would reject and betray him, then they could surely prove his guilt. However, now Judas had recounted his testimony and thrown the money into the temple. And that brings us to look at the second type of heart in this story, the hardened heart. The Pharisees and religious leaders before this point had been trying to find a way to stop Jesus. They desired to kill him, but many times were too afraid of the crowds that supported Jesus to be able to carry out any such plan. So the Pharisees made an underhanded and very shady plan. They conspired with Judas to betray Jesus at a time when Jesus would not be surrounded by his supporters. This way they could arrest and try him without interference of those who would want to see him free. They made the decision to execute a man without ever giving him a trial. We can see in our scripture reading today that Judas brought the money to them and admitted his guilt, but their response to this was, what is this to us? This is your responsibility. This response shows the very depths of heart hardening that was in these leaders. In order to condemn a person to death in the Jewish law, the person had to be found guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt with multiple witnesses whose stories all lined up when cross-examined. It was not something that was taken lightly and definitely not something that would have been done excessively often. The death penalty required so many different Jewish laws to be upheld. And when Judas recounted his witness account, this should have given immediate pause to the religious leaders they would have had to, in a sense, reopen the case and make sure that they still had enough witnesses, still had enough cross-examined stories to condemn this man to death. But instead, they blatantly tell Judas that it is not of their concern and that it's none of their business if he has condemned an innocent man to death. After Judas left the temple, they had to pick up the silver which he had thrown and decide what to do with it. The money at this point was known as blood money because it had been used to buy a witness statement that would cause a man to lose his life. They knew that by law this money had been acquired in a way that made it unusable in the temple. And I just want to make a reminder that they were the very ones who paid this money to Judas in the first place, yet now they cannot accept it back because they knew it was acquired wrongly. So they call a meeting and use the money to buy the potter's field, which would be used as a burial spot for foreigners. This would be an appropriate use during that time of the defiled money. But even the fact that they could not use this money, which they themselves had given to Judas, did not turn their hearts towards the reality of the crime that they were committing. 
when Jesus goes to trial in front of Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees bring dozens of accusations against him. These accusations, though, are ones that were so stretched, so unrealistic, that even Pontius Pilate realizes that they had brought Jesus to him for their own envy and self-interest. He had committed no crime worthy of death. Not only are they unwilling to accept the confession of Judas, but they are willing to flat out lie in order to get Jesus condemned. Then when they realize that Pilate is not in agreement with their desires to crucify Jesus, they go amongst the crowd spreading rumors. They get the crowd to turn their hearts towards condemning Jesus as well. As the crowd chanted for Jesus' death, they also accepted the release of a man who was known for his heinous crimes. Barabbas. He was a man who was known for rebellion and murder. He was a rightfully committed, convicted criminal. And Jesus was an innocent man. As they shouted for Jesus' death over and over, they also shouted for the release of a criminal back into their society. They were so blinded by hate that they chose sin over their savior. It wasn't enough for the Pharisees to harden their hearts, but they actively worked to gain support and turn the hearts of those who only days before had welcomed Jesus into the city as a king in victory. They deceived even to the point of turning the hearts of the people against God's own son. Thus, even when given the opportunity to free the innocent Jesus three different times, the people, along with their deceivers, chanted, crucify him and condemn the Messiah to death. The third heart to look at in this story is the fearful heart. This can be seen in Pontius Pilate. Jesus stood before Pilate, and, and Pilate immediately recognized that the religious leaders had brought him a man that was not deserving of death. This man whom he had heard called the Messiah was standing before him, and Pilate was amazed at how Jesus acted. The passage says that then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man, and he marveled at the way in which Jesus handled the hatred of the people who were accusing him. Jesus did not scream, he did not fight, he did not beg for his life or throw out other accusations back at the Pharisees. Instead, he took it. And as we can see in the other Gospels that show the same story, he even calmly was able to converse with Pontius Pilate about his identity. Pilate admitted that Jesus had no crimes that warranted death. When he heard that Jesus was a Galilean, he sent Jesus to Herod Antipas to be tried in his own jurisdiction. However, Herod too found no crimes that would allow Jesus to have the death sentence. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate 
so that he can do whatever he finds fit. And Pilate now has to look at the situation once again and decide what he's going to do with it. His wife actually intervenes during this with a letter that tells her husband not to have any part in the murder of this innocent man because she had been suffering a great deal in a dream because of him. Even she, who did not know Jesus as the Jews knew him, knew that he was an innocent man whose blood should not be shed. Pilate recognizes that the situation is not good. He gives multiple chances to the Jewish people to turn away from this course of action. In fact, in John 18, verses 7 through 12, Pilate is told by the Jewish leaders that they want Jesus crucified because they have a law, and according to that law, Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And it says that Pilate became extremely afraid, and from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate knew that this whole trial was a sham. The people there were accusing Jesus of things he obviously did not do, with no credible proof towards his guilt. However, this was a large crowd filled with very adamant people. They would not give this fight up no matter what. In John, the Jewish leaders even threatened Pontius Pilate by saying that if he allows Jesus to go free, then he is no friend of Caesar. You see, this was a threat because at the time, Pontius Pilate worked under the rule of Caesar. And if it was seen that he was not committed to serving his king and even allowed a man who was known to be a king of the Jews to live, then it could be seen as treason. And that could get Pilate removed, imprisoned, and killed. Pilate knew what he was doing was wrong. But as, a lot, as he attempted time and time again to get the people to reconsider, the crowd became restless. The scripture says that an uproar began, and in some translations it says a riot. The people were done waiting. They were not going to listen to reason, and they would even threaten Pontius Pilate with letting Caesar know of his insubordination if he would not accept their cries to crucify Jesus. So Pilate finally gives in. However, in a last attempt to rid himself of the guilt of participating in this action, he has a bowl of water brought out to him. The scripture says he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Pilate was doing something that he knew the Jewish people would have understood. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 6 through 9, it discusses what the Israelites were to do if a person was found murdered near a city in order to absolve them of the guilt of that person's death. All the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, and the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. Pilate washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. 
and the people accept the responsibility of Jesus' death. And Pilate hands over this man to be crucified and beaten. Pilate, though, may have thought he was innocent in this case, but in reality, he was not. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and he himself says in John 19, verse 10, that he has the power either to free Jesus or to crucify him. Pilate could have let Jesus go. However, he was fearful that it would cause problems amongst the Jews and that it may cause problems for him with Caesar. Because of his fear, he gave an innocent man over to one of the most brutal forms of death in the entire Roman Empire. His heart was fearful, and he allowed that fear to condone the death of the Messiah. Even though he tried to absolve himself of the guilt, he could not cleanse himself of the guilt of turning his eyes from the tragedy that he could have stopped and in the end passively participated in. The final heart that we'll be looking at is the grace-filled heart. This was the heart of Jesus in the story. As we discussed when looking at Judas, Jesus had, up to this point, performed countless miracles. Again, he had walked on the water, raised the dead to life, healed the sick. He had cast out demons and done so many other things. He easily had the power to break free from the chains of the captors. He could have easily decided that he didn't want to face the humiliation or the pain that awaited him by death on the cross. However, he chose to stay bound in the chains of the sinful men who were persecuting him and take the judgment gracefully. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends and handed over to be unfairly judged. He did not even choose to defend himself, but only answered the questions that were asked of him with honesty. The fact that he did not try to fight against his, his sentence astounded Pontius Pilate, and it caused him to wonder who this man was and why he would not even fight the lies that were being thrown at him. But Jesus knew the death that he faced was not one that would last forever, but one that would bring about the salvation for all humanity. Jesus did something that would honestly be extremely difficult for pretty much anyone to do. He stood there, heard their accusations, bared their humi the humiliation that they poured out on him, endured their mental and physical assaults, and then died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, as he was hanging there, he asked his father to forgive them, for they knew not what they were doing. That right there is the very heart of grace. Because even though Jesus had every reason to simply break free, to break free of his chains and remove himself from the cross, he chose to bear it for the salvation of the very people that had chosen to betray, persecute, and murder him. The cross is something that bears with it the very salvation of humanity. Some people, when they see the shadow of the cross in its vast enormity, 
they feel condemned, just as Judas did, and feel that their guilt overshadows grace. Others harden their heart and, and they desire to continue to live in their own sin as the Pharisees and religious leaders did. They refuse grace and do not want to have any part in it. Others tremble in fear and flee from the cross and try to place their guilt onto others. And finally, there are those that recognize the grace of the cross and choose to sit in its presence. So my question for you all today is what kind of heart do you have? Maybe you're like Judas with the sorrow-filled heart. Maybe you're the heart that feels like what you have done could never be forgiven. Your guilt is so great that you feel like you must punish yourself daily because you deserve that punishment. You can't see how a God could ever love you when you hate yourself so much. You have failed so many times and you wonder how many times God could forgive you for the same thing over and over before he finally decides that you're not worth it. Maybe you feel like it's all hopeless and like the things in your life will never be able to change. Maybe you think that if you could just do this thing better or stop doing this thing or, or just maybe, I don't know, help one more person, then maybe you can make up for all that you have done. I'm telling you right now that you can't. Only God's grace can overcome all of those things that you have done. Judas had recognized his guilt and repented. However, he let himself believe that he did not have access to God's grace and that he could somehow punish himself to the point of redemption. He allowed himself to believe that guilt is more powerful than God. When in reality, nothing is more powerful than our God. Jesus chose to die on the cross, even for the very people that placed him there. And what did he do while he hung there dying, bloodied by vicious beatings and dying of a slow suffocation? He asked God to forgive those who had placed him there. If Jesus could forgive the people that betrayed him, those who had lied about him and mocked him, those who had killed him, then why can't he forgive you? If God could transform the lives of Saul, who was a murderer, Moses, who was a murderer, David, who was an adulterer, Peter, who denied him three times, and all the other countless people in the Bible and in history, then what would make you so special to be undeserving of his grace. You must choose to recognize that Jesus died for all people. And that means you too. Even you, the broken, wretched, failing, always misstepping you. Or maybe you're the person with the hardened heart. At this point, you don't even care about the fact that you're living in sin. In fact, you've reached a place of contentment in your sin. It's fun, it feels good, it tastes sweet, and it gets you what you think you desire. And in reality, maybe you just don't see it as bad as this person's sin or that person's sin. 
So it's really not a big deal. Oh, and it's fun. So maybe you even tell a person here and there that it's a good thing trying to get validation from them. Maybe you've even roped a couple people into your bad choices. This could be making the choice to do drugs, watch pornography, gamble, cheat on your spouse. The list goes on and on. All things that in the darkness we believe we can get away with and won't have consequences. The first thing to keep in mind here is that those who measure their actions by the consequences of them rather than by the law of God, will find themselves looking at a very broken measure. The way of sin is always downhill, and if we cannot stop ourselves, then even less will we be able to stop the people whom we have set on the path of failure and destruction. Your actions matter. When you get content to sit in sin, and even choose to bring others into your sin. You set yourself and others up for failure and for consequences that may have to be dealt with for the rest of your lives. The first step in receiving the redemptive grace of the cross is to recognize that you need it. If we choose to accept our sin and reject the cross, then we choose consequences that will destroy us piece by piece. Recognize that you have a problem and have fallen short, just as Judas chose to admit his failure, choose to admit yours. He was willing to accept the consequences of his sin, even if it meant him being hung on the cross if the religious leaders had chosen that. He recognized his failure, understood the consequences, and chose to repent. If this is your heart, you must admit that you are living in sin and choose to accept the consequences that come when you are honest about that. Through this acceptance and honesty, you can work together with God and with accountability partners to move out of sin, begin to heal, and once again, walk with God? Or is your heart the one consumed by fear like Pontius Pilate's was? Do you find that you shy away from the reality of your guilt? Do you try to blame others when you make a bad decision or make a mistake? Do you believe that as long as your sin wasn't as bad as another person's, that maybe then you will be absolved of guilt or judged by a different measure? Do you believe that if you just turn your eyes away and act like you don't see the sin, that makes you guiltless? Let me tell you, it is a common instance of deceitfulness of our hearts to believe that we are less guilty by showing the reality of another person's sin. The judgment of God is according to truth, not according to comparison. Let me say that again, because I think that's important. The judgment of God is according to truth, not according to comparison. You cannot run away from your sin or act like it's not there. You cannot push your failures off onto someone else or act like their sin is worse than yours. Instead, you must accept that you are a sinner and that sin is sin no matter what sin it is in the eyes of God. 
Thankfully, no sin is too great to be forgiven. Rather than running in fear when faced with the reality of sin, choose to turn to the face of grace and understand that God's grace is more powerful than your fear. Do not choose to sit on the sideline and watch as atrocities occur, but choose to stand up for what is good and what is right, no matter the consequences that you might face. And most of all, understand that all you do must be out of a love for God and a love for others, rather than a love for yourself or fear for your own well-being. Maybe you're the grace-filled heart. You have Christ in you. You know that you're guilty, but God's amazing grace has covered you. You desire every day to grow closer to Christ and to learn more about the God who chose to love you even when you didn't deserve it. And if that's you today, then I challenge you to share that grace with others. God is a transformative and grace-filled God who desires for all to know him. So go into your workplaces, your homes, your friend groups. Go everywhere and proclaim the great grace of God who chooses to save even though we don't deserve it. There is one more type of heart that I'd like to talk about even though we didn't mention it before. And this is the yearning heart. Maybe today you are yearning for something more. You know that you're missing something and you know that you are a broken person. You have tried everything you could possibly think of to fill the, heart, the hole that is in your heart. And yet it just left you feeling even more empty. If that is your heart today, I want you to know that there is a God of grace that is waiting to fill that hole. He desires to be a partner to the lonely, a friend to the friendless, a father to the fatherless, a hope bringer, a caregiver, and a joy giver. He desires to walk with you and show you that you are never alone. If that is your heart today, I encourage you to come to either myself or Pastor Mike, whether it's after this service or later on, because we would love to talk about the changing grace of God and pray with you today. I would like to um, just take a time of prayer. The altars are always open, and I'll give a couple moments if anybody decides that they want to respond, and then I'll close in prayer. So the altars are open. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your all-sufficient grace. Though we choose to hurt you over and over through our sins, you still chose to die on the cross in order to redeem each of us and bring us back into relationship with you. There are so many different people in this room, and you know each of their hearts. You know those who are sorrowful. Please show them that your grace is greater than their guilt. There are those who are hardened. Please show them that their sin is no substitution for you. There are those who are fearful. Please show them that you are more powerful than their greatest fears. There are those whose hearts are grace-filled. 
Help them to boldly share the reality of who you are with those around them. And there are those who have hearts that are seeking. Help them to know that wholeness can only be found in you. We thank you that you choose us even in the midst of our failures and our brokenness. You never leave us alone, but wait until we are ready to turn around, to turn back to you. And when we choose to do that, we find that you have been standing right there with us the whole time. Please open our hearts to know you better and to live lives that bring glory to your name. It's in the precious name of the one that died for us, the Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.